0: Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest, the founder and CEO of film technology company, CineLogic, and a former world champion skydiver, screenwriter, film director, and stuntman who has doubled Arnold, Sly, and Robert De Niro. Let's welcome Guy Manis. Hi, Guy.
1: Steve, nice to be here.
0: Glad to have you. Um, you're, I get scared even lit, hearing the word skydiver and you you've done thousands of jumps. Uh, we'll get into that in a minute. But usually the first question I ask my guests is going back to when they were a little kid. What was your first exposure to movies? Did you was your family a movie going family? Did you ever go to the movies when you were little? Yes,
1: we were very much a movie-going family. Um, We didn't go as a family that often, as much as one parent would take a whole carload of kids, you know, to something suitable for for our age. But, uh, yeah, I remember seeing the Sound of Music with my parents, and birthday birthday parties were often movie outings with, you know, three carloads of kids. And... um, and so, yeah, I remember it all, all crystal clear.
0: So, um, people, um, enter show business from so many different paths. Um, you went to film school and the university of Miami, I believe. What yes. was the motivating factor that made you go into the film business? What, what, what were some of the things that influenced you or inspired you or did you have a mentor?
1: Uh, I didn't have a mentor at that time, and I I definitely remember picking University of Miami for all of its, you know, benefits before I chose the film program. So I was more tuned in on, you know, what they used to call suntan you. Um, (laughs) And and, and then it became, okay, it's time to pick a major. And my brother and I started thumbing through the... uh, the program that they had. And, uh, you know, I came across the cinema program. I didn't even know that they had such a thing, but of all the majors that you could list, that was the one that reached out to me. So it was, it was purely one of those, Hey, I've got to study something choices. Why not choose something that I know I already love. And, uh, from the very first day, They started showing me, you know, the whole behind the scenes aspect um, which I had never even considered before, you know, how somebody made that. How did they get that shot? Who wrote that? Never even thought about that as a high school kid, but uh, became acutely aware of it my freshman year of college and just fell in love with the whole industry.
0: Well, it's kind of unusual for there to be an undergrad film program, generally they're post grad so that that was a bit unusual. What are what are some of your memories of the film program? Anything that stands out in your head in terms of impacting?
1: Well, they had they, they were really ahead of their time there at at the University of Miami. I, I don't think any of my professors had you know amazing Hollywood credentials or anything, but but they did know uh, how to break this stuff down for us. And the other thing that the cinema program offered was it was actually kind of a dual major where you were male, you were majoring in drama with all the, with all the theater kids. And you were also had this film and television program where you got to tinker around with cameras and lights and microphones and editing, things like that. So it was, it was really comprehensive. And they, they sent us around to a lot of different, uh, parts of the campus and everything for these different disciplines but it all came together really nicely on my very first movie was wasn't until years later uh the movie cliffhanger a big stallone action
0: piece and uh you know i I had it all figured out it was it was uh, a wonderful education no i envy you that because um i i went to ucla as a history major and i didn't really know anything about film i was a film goer but if I'd known there was a film program, which there probably was, but I, I wasn't as aware of it. I actually went into journalism writing for my college newspaper, so becoming a writer from that angle. So when you got out of college, uh, what was your first move?
1: My first move out of college was straight into the world of competitive skydiving. Uh, skydiving was something that I fell into in college, no no pun, <laughs> that I uh, fell into, and it was starting to occupy more and more of my time to the point where there were times when I wondered whether I was going to graduate at all because I had been bitten so thoroughly by this skydiving bug. Um, But fortunately, I was able to bring the skydiving into my junior and senior year films. And so those scored me A's in my films not because I was a particularly brilliant filmmaker, but because I had better action on the screen than everyone else who shot their roommate in their dorm room or something. I had something, you know, (laughs) big and, and, uh, eye popping, uh, back then. And so, uh, it, it, it all worked out well.
0: So, um, not being a skydiver and certainly looking at somebody who, who is, it was very much part of your life. Describe the, the experience of your first skydive?
1: My first skydive was total terror. And back in those days, you wore you know, big heavy army boots and a big uh, motorcycle, you know, a clunky motorcycle helmet. And you jumped out, and your parachute was opened almost instantly by what they used to call a static line, so there was no extended freefall. And then when you landed, the dirt and rocks flew up in the air. And, you know, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't the clean, cool sport that you see James Bond do in his movies. It was, it was very much the old paratrooper kind of uh, dynamic. Uh, but it scared me so absolutely that that is what drove me to go back again and again and again. So I really was never trying to conquer the sport of skydiving. As much as I was trying to conquer my own fear, and when I finally got the the fear under control after about maybe 20 jumps, behind that I discovered that there's all these skills involved that have nothing to do with whether you're going to survive or get hurt or anything like that, but just to be, uh, just to uh, exist in the world of these athletes. And so it became then like other sports that I enjoyed, where I just wanted to do it because I wanted to be good.
0: Wow, I mean, um, being a James Bond historian, obviously there's been a number of skydiving moments in, in the movies, um, the most well-known one, of course, is the opening to Moonraker, where James Bond gets thrown out of a, of a jet without a parachute, but then he maneuvers his body in this way of actually being able to, to, to control its movement. I mean, my, my sense, if I, I fell out of an airplane I would be all arms and legs in all different directions, but bond uh, or whoever was stunt doubling him m- maneuvered his body and put their arms in a certain way. And they became like a, 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 an airplane. And that's something you obviously learned.
1: Yep. And I also came to know those two stuntmen. That was uh BJ worth was the bad guy who had the parachute until bond caught him. And then, uh, what was his name? His name was, his, I know his name was Jake and I can't remember his- Oh, I his, think it's Lombard. Jake Lombard, yes, Jake Lombard. And we ended up doing lots of projects, movies, commercials and everything uh, since then.
0: So as, if, as I recall when I, I, maybe this is just a trainee person, but you have a you have a parachute and you have an auxiliary parachute. Is that standard op in most flights or do you, or some people jump with just one?
1: There's, there's a new crop of young base jumpers who jump with uh, base jumping is when you jump off of a cliff or a building or an antenna, you know, something like this. And there's a new crop of base jumpers who don't use reserve parachutes anymore. And it's not because they don't trust the technology. It's because they're so low when they start their whole escapade that there's no point. you, You wouldn't have time for a reserve parachute. Uh, You know, even if you needed one and um, but beyond that, we always use uh, two parachutes and even in the Moonraker scene and in subsequent movies and commercials that I've done with what are called hidden rigs um, we we are able to hide two parachutes in the wardrobe in Moonraker. It was a sport coat and it was the sport coat that because the sport coat is being uh, blossomed around by the wind anyway. They could fit the extra uh, parachute, uh, the, the extra parachutes underneath.
0: In all of your time jumping, have you ever had to deploy a second chute?
1: Yes, about a dozen times in oh, wow. in almost, you know, in, in over eleven thousand jumps. Wow. Which of course is why we have it. It's not uh, it's not considered a emergency procedure as much as it is just a a kind of a part of business uh when you have a flat tire on your car you pull over to the side of the road and you pull out your spare we think of it the same way
0: incredible incredible i um now now are you still jumping
1: yes yes we spend a lot more time in wind tunnels these days because they're they're so convenient you can show up at one of these uh wind tunnel facilities have you seen these uh it's like a vertical silo right they have
0: one at universal
1: tour exactly and now they're everywhere they're all over the country and so you can go to one of these and you when you schedule that day of flying with your friends you don't have to worry about uh you know weather problems or anything like that you know that you're going to go in and get your free fall experience and so we do a lot more wind tunneling than we do skydiving these days simply because it's so convenient
0: so you you get out of college you're a major skydiving diving presence and that was kind of your entry into hollywood i assume
1: yes i uh ended up uh Winning the world championships in 1985, we won and we beat the Soviet team, and that was a big deal in in those years. And beating the Soviet team landed me three guest appearances on the old Merv Griffin show. You remember the Merv Griffin oh, show? Sure.
0: Now, now back up a second. Uh, what actually is involved in a skydiving competition? What are you trying to achieve?
1: Right our event was called uh, the four-way division where a team of four jumpers jumps out and they build a series of formations so they all hold hands in a circle and we call that a star and then as soon as you've completed that star you let go and everybody turns sideways and we build what's called a donut and then one guy faces away from the rest of the team and the rest of the guys you know glob on and we call that a diamond and so you race through this set sequence of formations. And then the Soviet Union team goes and they race through the same sequence of formations. And so it becomes how many formations can you build in the 35 second allotted working time?
0: 35 seconds?
1: 35 seconds for the (laughs) four-way event,
0: yes. (laughs) Well, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. Um, so you were on the Merv Griffin show, and are you now? Are you now living in California, or are you still living in Florida?
1: Still, still here in Jupiter, Florida. We're about to get hit by a hurricane in a few hours, and um, but the the Merv show brought me on there as kind of the instructor to the stars, where I would take a celebrity for a jump and show them being scared out of their wits, which made for great television for Merv's show. And Merv had a uh, fledgling film division that he was trying to get off the ground in those days. And so those shows scored so well with his audiences that he said, do you have a skydiving script that you could write us? And so I joined Merv's writing team. And our first movie was called Drop Zone, a Wesley Snipes picture. That uh, came out a few years later. So it's funny. They tell you how you have to move out to L.A., you have to you know wait tables or park cars for ten years before your script gets sold. I showed up, typed the end, and had a sale the next week, <laughs> and we went straight into a big budget you know film production. I'm very very lucky.
0: Well, if you come into town with a unique skill, I think people pay attention. And whereas there's 90 handlers for every star. When you have that skill, you are able to interact with people right away, which is great. I mean, these days trying to reach out to actors and access them for projects, it's, uh, it's like swimming the channel. You really have to go through a lot of obstacles.
1: I was very lucky because in uh, a few years before the Drop Zone effort, I had made my first documentary. And it it had done fine. It aired on the A&E channel. It was a cable channel back then. I think it's still on the Arts and Entertainment Network. And so I had this calling card of this 30-minute uh, VHS tape of, of my documentary. And so everyone that we took uh, the drop zone idea to said no. And then we showed them the tape and they reversed their decision. And this went right up the ladder all the way to Sherry Lansing at at Paramount, where every vice president and senior executive vice president, all the way up to her, everyone said no. Everyone saw the documentary. Everyone reversed their decision, including Wesley Snipes. He said no. And then he saw the video. He said, okay, I get it now. And the video included wind tunnels. It included tandem jumping, which was you know, the, the new thing that I had brought to the Merv Griffin show and uh, all the different aspects of skydiving were all crammed into that little, um, little half hour show. And it, it helped propel the script to a green light.
0: I'm trying to think of um, the movie about the surfers that has some skydiving. Point break, point, point break. break. That, that, that But that was, you didn't work on that.
1: No, but my my team, CineLogic, the team that I captain today, my, some of my some of my guys did. Oh, you did, and they they yeah. taught Patrick Swayze to jump, and Patrick's brother Donnie is still a part of our crew. Oh, and he's an, an avid skydiver.
0: When when I'm introduced to actors, there's so many different emotions that are running through me when I see somebody for the first time. Some actors uh, who you've seen on screen for years are rather low key. Some guys walk into the room and the whole room vibrates. Tell, tell me what what was your first impression of Arnold?
1: Arnold was, you know, he was the number one box office star in the world. When I first met him on my first Arnold movie, I did several. It was uh, last action hero, right? And, uh, it was, it was, a a movie where through supernatural science fiction you know stuff there are two Arnold's running around in this movie and in one scene one of the Arnold's tackles the other Arnold into uh, a bunch of people sitting at a, at a, in a theater at a, at a big you know uh, banquet or something or, or a big uh, award ceremony and so I was one of the stuntmen whom Arnold was tackled into my lap and so when you have Arnold falling into people's laps with the hard cha- arms of the chairs, you have to have trained stuntmen in there who can look like they're being splattered by Arnold, but are in fact catching him and spotting him so that he doesn't get hurt. And so that was my my first exposure to that whole world. And that my first night there, we all went with Arnold to the gym and worked out and here I'm sitting next to John McTiernan and watching him direct for, like, two weeks. I got to pick his brain, and uh, I got a, a front row seat, uh, you know, into, into the whole show.
0: That's great. What, what's, what was your experience with Stallone?
1: Uh, Stallone was great. Didn't get to know him too well on Cliffhanger, which was my first movie of his, but then I did, uh, more recently, Grudge Match, where it's a boxing movie where he ends up fighting Robert De Niro. And so I got to work with him much more closely on that and uh you know great guy still in incredible shape. I mean it was my job to put his parachute pack on on him and everything and it was like it was like putting it on a marble statue. This guy is <laughs> still just as solid as as he was, you know, back in the Rocky days. And um had nothing but, you know, great things to to say about that experience it was wonderful
0: most people think that uh, that slice is like his rocky character you know talking in uh, use and those type of things but he's a very <laughs> intelligent well spoken guy
1: if if you if you if you never met him if you just looked at his career you you have to say that the guy's a genius because you know he he sprung on all of us with this oscar winning screenplay that you wouldn't even call an action picture you wouldn't call rocky an action picture rocky is a drama you know and then yet he was able to his his inner compass was able to steer him toward big budget action and now he's he's got to be 75 years old right and he's still doing it today he's still doing it and still making profitable films which I mean, the number of people who have come and gone between his start and his finish, it, you know, it's just incredible that he still uh, found that route. Whether it's the the uh, what do they call it? oh the expendables, or even this this recent thing that I saw, he did one for Amazon that was just clever, and it, it was uh, it's it's just amazing to, to see that he still isn't running out of ways to make money.
0: It's interesting, the whole concept of movie stars doing action. You know, it's the, well, when Hollywood abandoned the contract format and started dumping their exclusive contracts with actors back in the 50s, um, nothing has really entered that space since. So basically, actors come from wherever they come from and they're not nurtured by the studios. They're they're hired by the studios, so they have to find their ways. I'm not surprised that people like Stallone and, and uh, Harrison Ford are still doing action pictures because there aren't a lot of guys that have picked up the slap, especially not a lot of American actors. We've got a lot of Brits and Australians doing it now. Now you've gotten heavily involved, uh, not only from your producing, you've gotten now involved in technology. Tell me a little bit about how, uh, how this whole idea I know you, we're going to talk about the pre and the way that you want to revolutionize the business. How did this all first come up to be with you? Because you were an active stuntman and a director. Uh, how did that come about?
1: It it all came about um, through skydiving, like everything in my life is <laughs> center, centered around the skydiving. And our big nemesis back in those years was not the Soviet team because the Soviet team wasn't even showing up at international competitions our nemesis was the u.s army team the golden knights they were called and they were professional jumpers who got paid to make like over 800 jumps a year so they had all of this cumulative time in these formations that we couldn't ever hope to match with with our budget our personal pocketbooks and so we had to come up with a way to uh we had to come up with a simulator And our simulator was those little, they're called creepers. They're like a skateboard looking kind of thing. The thing that a mechanic uses to slide under your car on his back to to look up at the undercarriage of your car. Well, we bought four of those and started doing our skydiving routines out on the pavement. And so suddenly this team with no money had more time in these formations than the U.S. Army's professional team because we were using a simulator. We were able to create the environment. I mean, it was a pretty poor simulation, but it was still a simulator, and it still gave us all the necessary distances and angles and timings that we needed up in the air. And so that lesson stuck with me, uh, the idea that any kind of realistic uh, practice that you can get, is better than trying to make things up at the last second and so when we switched over to the movie industry we had already started playing around with computer-drawn images for our skydiving and so on my very first movie cliffhanger you know everybody's screaming and yelling at each other about the cost and and uh, the the safety factors and all these things and i my team immediately knew These guys should be using their computers to figure all this stuff out rather than trying to figure it out on the shooting day. And so we knew we knew right away what their problem was. We didn't know that that our solution could apply as well as we found that it has at first we thought well we we have a better way to make skydiving scenes but it might not apply to all these other kinds of action. But then as we got deeper and deeper into the game, we said, no, our system is actually better for all kinds of action. And then we started wondering, well, do you think this could be used for the dialogue scenes? And we started experimenting with that with some pretty good actors and it worked (laughs) really, really well. It allowed us to focus our limited resources on the shots that we knew were already going to be a part of the finished edit rather than wasting nine-tenths of your budget on shots that aren't going to survive the edit and so um we were you know uh early adopters of this previs technology and that led us right into the the sinologic innovations
0: so it, it, excuse me because i uh i have to embrace this technology in a way to understand it pretty well i mean i understand that film directors use storyboards to understand what their shots are going to be. It sounds like what you're saying is that you can take a storyboard, and you can actually make the sequence. And it's, uh, it's, it's all visually right there. And then the actors are brought into that? Are they working against green screens, blue screens, video walls? I mean, how is that integrated?
1: Right? Okay, so First, uh, to, to understand what Previs technology is, just imagine the most ex- the, the newest, most expensive video games that are out there. You know, the image is not good enough to show an audience, but it's pretty real. I mean, you you can see distances and angles, and if you change the lens, the, the virtual lens of the virtual scene, the results are, you know are authentic, they're photorealistic. And so what we do at Cinelogic is we shoot all that coverage. So we shoot a scene from you know 100 different angles with you know 15 different lenses just the way a Hollywood director would on set, but we're doing it in a virtual world where there's no expense. And then we send all that virtual footage to an editor who is then able to deliver to us the edited version of the scene that we've looked at. And so now, rather than shooting everything under the sun to find out what the final scene is going to be, we're looking at the final scene before we ever go out and roll cameras. And so we know that, okay, the the establishing shot, he walks in, walks up to her and kisses her, and then she slaps him. And we know that that's the cut point, that that slap is when you cut from the master shot to the close-up of the slap. And so there's no need to film the rest of the scene in the master shot, because we already know that that's the end of that shot's contribution to the final film. So now we're in the world of close-ups, and maybe she slaps him and then kisses him back. And all these details of when do you cut from over her shoulder to over his shoulder, when do you pull back to a medium shot, we've already made these decisions in advance and we've seen them so we're not just making arbitrary decisions we're shooting it a hundred different ways and choosing the one best way that we want to spend our real world dollars on
0: well um i think the term revolutionary is too light a term i mean this is basically changes the whole way in which movies movies are done i mean these days it's become as you point out every Tent pole is $250 million. I mean, it's and they shoot for months and months and months and then they spend a another six months in the digital room. This sounds like you're able to uh, kind of take that process and shrink it down considerably so that rather than shoot the movie live action and then follow it with six months of digital work. It sounds like you're able to bring the digital work up front.
1: Right. It, it's it's a real simple concept that you can design your movie in detail on your computer screen. Then you can watch that movie with your friends, with your colleagues, with your family. You could even show it to a test audience, and you can make a list of all your movie's flaws. And believe me, every movie you make has flaws. I mean, if you if you got Steven Spielberg in here on the show, he would tell you what he wishes he could change about Jaws or Schindler's List or you know what have you, and so there's always improvements to be made, and so we can then go back into the computer simulator and make all those improvements. And what we found is that you can do this improving process. Let's call it let's call it uh, audience testing and reshoots. You can do this process about 150 times. And every single time you do it, your movie gets a little better. It doesn't get a lot better. It gets a little better, but you can do it so many times that your movie ends up getting a lot better. And so now you're looking at your finished product with the one exception that it still looks like a video game. The actors' faces aren't as good as real actors can deliver the, you know, the, The cinematography is not as perfect as, you know, this year's Academy Award winner for cinematography, but it's really, really close. And so then you can gather your artists together, whether they're actors or cinematographers, you know, or uh, dance choreographers or what have you. And you can say, "Okay, you guys, this is what we have so far. Now we want to do a few more versions of this uh, cartoon that we've made. So now the actor says, okay, well, I, I, I love the scene that you've got here, but you've got me saying the line and then standing up defiantly. I was thinking that I would stand up defiantly and then say the line. And so our response to that is, okay, well, let's take a look at that. And then we change the, uh, the choreography, the blocking of the scene. And you can do this with just a click of a mouse. You can look at that actor's suggestion and you look at it and you go, what do you know? It is better. His idea is better. So now you throw out your previous version, and now you've got this new version where the actor is uh, the actor as the as the keeper of the character has got his improving little innovation built in there, and then the cinematographer does the same thing, and the uh, costume
0: designer does the same thing. Now, now hang, and, hang hang on one second, because you're saying the cinematographer does this thing. If you, like, let's say for argument's sake, we're doing a sequence on a sand dune. And you've got Sly Stallone doing a sword fight battle with some Arab chieftain. So you're on this sand dune and you've created this digitally with your previs technology. So you, you actually haven't gone out to a sand dune in Arabia. You've gone into the computer and created this virtual world like you do with a video game. So now that you have that scene, what do you mean the cinematographer comes in? What is he going to do with that scene?
1: What what we want to um, what we want to preempt is the cinematographer or the actor or the sword fight uh, choreographer contributing great ideas on a shooting day. We don't want their great ideas on a shooting day. We want those same great ideas two months ahead of the shooting day. And so by making them a part of this process, they start telling you all the same things they would tell you on the shooting day because now they're seeing what you're planning. They're not just hearing you pitch it verbally. They're seeing it. And they say, oh, well, no, there's a better angle for that, for that chopping, uh, you know, swipe. And so you take all of their improvements and incorporate them before you go out to the sand dune so that when you go out to the sand dune, you already know okay, guys, we've got 26 shots to deliver today. The longest one is six seconds. Seven of them are 1.2 seconds. Now let's start setting them up. And you never even shoot the entire scene. So Stallone does not have to learn uh, a hour and 30-minute fight choreography because we already know that the best sword fights are cut up into tiny little snippets. So all you have to tell Stallone is, okay, pick it up in your right hand and swing it, you know, one time at the guy and, and his reaction is always the same. Okay, then what? Nothing, Sly. That's it. It's just one shot of you swiping. And of course he gets it on one take because no one can make a mistake. A stuntman, an actor, or a focus puller or a cameraman can't make a mistake in a second and a half shot. And you you shoot that one in one take. You say, okay, cut print, that's perfect. And you move on to your next little snippet. And so there is no turning in multiple versions of the scene to editorial because your editor already did his job two months before you ever went out to the sand
0: dune. The footage that you gather in your previs, I'm, try, I'm trying to understand this in my own head, is a template. You're still going to go out to the sand dune, but rather than futz around and try to figure out what you're trying to do, especially with directors who don't know their ass from the hole in the ground, who are experimenting on the set and wasting tons of time. You don't do that anymore because you've created this template. Now, could this apply to non-action movies as well? Could it apply to any kind of movie?
1: Absolutely. We've shot drama, dialogue, comedy with it. Now it doesn't have the same effect on price. So if you had a very, uh, dialogue-driven drama, this sinologic process of ours may only cut your cost in half. But if you have uh, a movie that's nothing but action scenes on sand dunes and, you know, ship the decks of ships in hurricanes and things like that, now we can cut 60, 70, 80% off the cost of that movie because of what we won't be producing for the editing room floor,
0: got it, got it. So, um, how many times have you actually? I mean, you've actually done this previs for certain movies. Uh, you've been doing this for how long? Uh,
1: we started. We did our our first time with the modern technology was uh, an Arnold film called Eraser in 1996, and for that uh, for that scene we were nominated for the of course they don't give oscars to arnold schwarzenegger movies but they do give mtv best action scene awards and if you look back through the history of those nominations you can't get those nominations without spending over five million dollars so all the movies that have all the scenes that have ever been nominated for that particular award cost five million dollars we turned in two scenes uh, using this method, one of them got that uh, that MTV nomination, and we did it for 180,000. And they only gave us Arnold for two hours. And if you if if you know you know your way around the film set, you know that no one can shoot an action scene with two hours with the movie star. And they gave us Arnold for two hours, and they gave us John uh, uh, James Con for two hours, and they didn't give us both of them. For any hours. We had no time where Arnold and James Conn were on set with us at the same time. So we had two hours of James Conn time, two hours of Arnold time. We delivered two big major action scenes, one of which won that award, and we did the scenes for $180,000 each.
0: Wow. So from what I've gathered from listening to some of your other interviews, there's been considerable pushback on your technology. Like people don't want to get rid of their old ways. They do not want to embrace what you can do. Uh, can you describe a little bit of what you, what happens when you go into the marketplace?
1: Yes, uh, this, this, this innovation of ours so fundamentally changes what a director and what a producer what they do that it actually violates the DGA agreement and and I know cuz I'm a DGA member and so you have to understand that a a director as defined by the DGA agreement is the artist who makes or manages all the creative decisions made during pre-production production and post and in our world there are no creative decisions made during pre-production production or post because all those creative decisions were made three months before the first day of pre-production it's it's done it's locked uh we we call this the beethoven criteria so in other words if you go to to downtown la to the symphony uh i forget the name of that where do you guys where does the la symphony play
0: yeah it's a music center
1: yeah at the music center if you go down there and you say okay guys we're we're and you gather the orchestra and you say okay we're going to play beethoven's 5th no one looks at the sheet music and says okay how are we going to do this this time No, you don't you don't interpret beethoven every artist in there the first violin and the second trombone and the you know the every artist in in the uh, orchestra is simply executing what beethoven already dictated 250 years ago. And so we're saying that you can do the same thing with movies. You can design your movie on your computer screen, and then the artists who go out into the field, their job is not to create anymore. Their job is to execute just like those uh, orchestra musicians.
0: Well, that that is uh, th- that to me seems a very pragmatic way of making movies, and the opposite of seat of the pants filmmaking. Uh, you, uh, your uh, your pants are very fixated in this process. <laughs> 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 well, it's it's fascinating. Um, you know, how long did it take for movies to go from silent to talky? You know, I think that it's it's. I think this kind of This kind of technology, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, There's a lot of talk uh, amongst the streaming companies now that they've spent way too much money, that these $200 million movies that go straight to streaming, do not get the kind of waterfall of box office from all the other forms, because they're streaming movies, they have kind of a, a, a taint to them. So they're cutting back. So I think one way of 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 making things more practical would be to use your technology. So I hope you can break through. Well, we we we
1: already have in that the proof is in the pudding. We've got, you know, I mentioned that scene from Eraser. We have a whole portfolio of such scenes, you know, many of which you would recognize. And they all have the same two character or the same three characteristics in common. One, they've got higher quality than the rest of the movie. <laughs> they stand out as being one of the better scenes in the movie. They have a ridiculously low price and they generated incredible resentment from the director and the producers. And so the only reason we were able to secure these contracts is because they were already over budget and in trouble. So for example that e- eraser uh, scene that I'm talking about uh, that particular director was way over budget and way over schedule already. And so the production felt pressured in because I, I was telling them I can give you these two scenes for X for a certain price. And they would have never, they would have never uh, taken me up on my offer, except that they had a financial gun to their head. And so then they did. And I, I produced the scenes and then we showed them what we would show is a horribly watermarked vhs tape of the scenes so they could see what we had produced but they couldn't use it and we would send them a vhs and they'd say okay that's great that's perfect send us the film and we would say okay send us the check and then when we received the check we would part with our film and those are the scenes that you see in the movies today
0: it sounds like that Given your knowledge of this technology, you should be producing your own movies.
1: That's that's the goal of CineLogic. We're not trying to uh, get the Hollywood production system to adopt our innovations. We simply want to sell finished films to the acquisitions departments of the major studios. And, you know, the acquisitions departments, they don't care how you made the film. They judge the film based on its merits. And we're, we're perfectly happy with that kind of arrangement. And so that's why we're trying to, you know, do this uh, this money raise now. I should say that we're on startengine.com slash CineLogic if anyone out there wants to become an investor in CineLogic. But the goal is to raise our own capital, make our own movies, and then simply sell them uh, to the majors.
0: And what budget range do you v- envision your movies being made on? We would want to make uh, every, every movie we make should be over
1: $100 million in terms of its look, but you have to understand that we can hit that $100 million look for less than $20 million. So we're, we're making $100 to $200 million movies, but we're spending 20 to $40 million to get them
0: wow that's
1: and that allows enough margin for the studio to buy them from us at a tremendous discount and yet we still have a tremendous margin uh because of our costs
0: well that's great that's great well i i i think you're going to find your way this technology this cost saving manner is so timely with the business being what it is that i can't see it not succeeding
1: it, it, it really has incredible uh, ramifications for everything. Here's, here's a fun one to lay on you. Okay, so you've, you've got your action movie, and it's all laid out for you on your computer screen. And if you study action movies, you know that the average shot length in an action movie is about 2.8 seconds. So there's no 30-second performances in a big-budget action movie. They cut from one angle to another very rapidly. And so when you know where those cuts are, you don't shoot long performances anymore. You shoot little tiny snippets. And so let's go back to your uh, Stallone on the sand dune uh, idea. So you're up there. You're shooting a two-second shot of Sylvester Stallone uh, sword fighting with the bad guy in your movie. And he does his two-second performance. And of course, it's perfect because it only lasts two seconds. And you can say cut. Okay, and you can have Stallone and your bad guy step out of the frame, because remember, you still spent considerable resources creating that shot setup, and then your two Chinese actors can step into the frame and do the same choreography in the same story of the same movie, but you're making an entirely separate version of the movie for China where every performer in the Chinese version is chinese speaking mandarin and so you've cloned the movie for an an extra two or three million dollars and a couple extra motorhomes exactly and a couple extra motorhomes and then you do the same with india and japan and germany and so on and now you've got these movies that look like big budget american spectaculars yet they seem to be starring your local actors speaking the local language and so which movie you know are those audiences going to choose of course the american version was going to do okay in china anyway but it's not going to do as well as if it were starring uh, you know a chinese cast and so a jurassic park movie there should be an indian version and a chinese version and a german version and more indians and chinese and germans will show up to see that version, than they will the American version.
0: We talked when we first talked, uh, guy, about the video wall, the wall technology that is per- permeating Hollywood now, where you can shoot these heavy special effects movies literally on a soundstage, and the soundstage is not necessarily an interior; it could also be a desert or a ruined city or wherever these special effects laden movies do. Is that? kind of would you be doing that kind of technology as well
1: yes anything that can that can prevent you from moving uh big movie stars and large crews out to exotic locations is something you always want to take advantage of so the movie needs those exotic locations you need to go to the top of mount everest or to the beach in fiji or to the North Pole I mean these are these are important things for you know to make your movie into what it needs to be but now you'll send two guys out to those uh exotic locations and they'll shoot the backgrounds for your entire movie this is before first unit ever even convenes and then those backgrounds will play on these virtual walls So your movie stars don't have to go to the top of Mount Everest or to the North pole or into the swamps of new Orleans. You can, you can uh, do all that stuff on stage. And when you do it right, it looks, you, you, you cannot tell the difference. Now, of course, not everybody does it right. And our Synologic technology fixes that problem. And so, because it coordinates that first unit, uh, Foreground shot and that second unit background shot
0: in a way that words and verbal instructions can never do. Well, you certainly understand your system, and you're a good salesman for it. And I, I hope the executives who are listening to this podcast will get you in the door because you're going to save them a ton of money, and uh, you're going to make the actors' lives much better. I think you said on one of your interviews that. Actors spend a lot of time in their trailers, waiting all day to come out and shoot two seconds of film. Whereas with your system, they could probably shoot 20 sequences in the time they wait on one.
1: Yep, and we've done it. We've got the field tests and the data to prove it from an actor's perspective, from a cinematographer's perspective. We wear all the hats in our company. And uh, what's so funny about it is this has already been done and those studio executives that you mentioned, they just don't know it. That, but movies in their own libraries have scenes that have been done this way. And if they just looked at the math and, and checked the quality versus the cost, they'd, uh, they'd be adopting this.
0: Got it, got it. Well, we've been listening to a very interesting conversation from Guy Manis of CineLogic. Uh, I think the people have gotten a quick education on what can be done with filmmaking today. Guy, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, this, is, this has been quite a lesson. You're
1: very welcome and if I could just if I could just pimp that website one more time, it's startengine.com/ sinologic
0: Fabulous. You've been listening to Saturday night at the movies, the podcast co- blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the podcast that celebrates classic current cult films and now film technology. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 network. Thank you. Thank you again, Guy. And I hope to talk to you again soon about what successes you will be having.
1: Thank you.